This podcast is brought to you by People Dancing and was recorded in front of a live audience at the People Dancing International Conference, Glasgow 2017. Episode 7, Liz Lerman, The Complexities of Creativity. Uh, welcome everybody, uh, especially to those uh, people who are joining us this morning for the first time. I think we're in for a treat this morning. Uh, We've worked you really hard over the last couple of days with early starts, late finishes, lots of conversations and new connections, but I hope lots of nourishment too. And now, on this appropriately sunny day, we're here for this next session, which will bring the conference to a close. In our planning for this event, we wanted to leave you with an experience that sits at the very core of why we're here and what we all do. So please, join together in extending the warmest of welcomes to choreographer, performer, writer, teacher and speaker, Liz Lerman. Hi everybody. Uh, it's lovely to put Seeker in there. I'm, that's very nice. Uh, uh, I'm very, very sorry that I haven't been here for the last few days. It seems amazing what you have done, what you've gotten to say to each other, what you've heard. And uh, I hope that uh, what we'll do for these last few minutes will, um, will somehow weave into the stories that you each are bringing. Uh, every time I come to the UK, I am um, just so moved by the, uh, the effort in the work and the way people are trying to understand the work and the way the work is being supported. And uh, I'm, again, just very moved by my time in Leeds the last few days and to come here, so thank you. Um, <clears throat> I thought maybe I would start um, with just a short little story from a book called Hiking the Horizontal, which will become more explanatory as I go along today. Um, I'm planning to uh, tell a few stories, um, set some theoretical frameworks that may be useful for you, maybe not, maybe you'll want to push back against them. We'll have a time to talk among us, questions, and then um, uh, if there's time, and I hope there is, I'd like to, to bring to bear some new thinking I'm doing right now about these things. But this is uh, from this book. It's just a very short little story. And it, uh, I'm reading it because uh, in some ways I feel the whole thing is just personal. I mean, we can get into the theory and everything I just said, but in the end, you know, where are each of us located in this? Luckily for me, the Dance Exchange, that was the company I founded and directed for many years, but which now lives in the hands of a, uh, several generations of new artists for which I'm very grateful. Luckily for me, the Dance Exchange made regular visits to a part of Arizona near my uncle's home, enabling me to spend time and to be in touch with him. As it turned out, I was in the state when he went into a coma as he neared the end of his life. I went to visit him and to see my aunt, who was sitting by his bedside as I entered the room. It was impossible not to notice the way my uncle's arms were moving through the air, even though he was lying down and otherwise quite still. This restless motion was disturbing to my aunt, and the medical people said that they could give him more drugs to quiet him down. I asked my aunt if I could just hold his hands for a moment. I wanted to touch him and to be close, but I asked especially because I was really curious about the movement. What was he doing? Why was he doing it? I couldn't answer this by watching. I had to feel the movement myself. My aunt consented, and I took both his hands in mine. I just followed wherever his arms took me. It didn't feel as jerky as it looked. It didn't seem to be about nervousness at all, but more a kind of gliding through the air. Then I felt a tap on my shoulder. It was my aunt. She said, can I try that? 
We switched places, and she took his hands. The last image I have of my uncle alive is seeing my aunt dancing with him, which apparently they did for the next two days, the last they would have together. It would be easy to teach people the dance skills necessary to be able to do this. It would, it would take much more to get this culture of ours to be less suspicious of movement, so that rather than drugging someone out of the need for it, they could rather wonder about its meaning, test its need by copying it with an empathetic unison motion, and then discover its beauty. As I said, I think it's all personal. And uh, <clears throat> one of the things that I feel so fortunate in my own life is the possibility of bringing it's not bringing multiple worlds together. Sometimes I think I'm the world. I'm just moving through all these fragmented worlds. But bringing the knowledge that you get in one area into another and then how, how you frame that and how much our work as artists it can be the river of that. So I wanted to start with just a few stories that um, sort of set a, a kind of a stage with some of the questions that have emerged for me um, <clears throat> over the years. Uh, I want to begin with um, two that come out of, um, in a way, a sense of failure. And I tell them because I feel, of course, as you'll hear, they're really not failures. But they're, they're failure in my capacity to understand how to measure even my own experience and what I'm doing. And since I know that this is such an issue for all of us, this notion of proving impact and everything, I thought this might help. So I was um, touring a piece that I had made called Nine Short Dances About the Defense Budget and Other Military Matters. This piece had grown out of my uh, absolute utter belief that if I don't understand something, if I make a dance about it, by the time I'm done, I'm going to know something about that subject matter. And I could not understand our defense budget. And I did make these dances, and, uh, which turned out to be just incredibly interesting. Um, and then I was touring it, and in this particular case, I was brought to a community for a week, and one of the places they wanted me to go was the Cheyenne, Wyoming Kiwanis Club. Wyoming is way out in our west, and these Kiwanis Clubs, I don't know if you have them here, but these are, these are sort of um, civic groups that usually meet once a week over lunch. They're all the civic leaders. They come together. They do things like scholarships and stuff like that, and they buy flags and things. And they're really, they're quite an amazing place. Um, and this was, uh, this was going to be a performance of that piece for the Kiwanis Club. Uh, and this, uh, Cheyenne, Wyoming is also home to one of our biggest defense in installations. So a lot of the members are defense people. So I, um, I went in a little nervous, and uh, my husband's a storyteller, and he said, oh, tell him this. This is an old-timey tale. He said, tell him, uh, and I did, I feel like a long-tailed cat in a room full of rocking chairs. And they sort of got that. <laughs> they, they hung in there with me. Well, I started performing. Actually, they didn't hang in there with me. They started to leave. One by one, they just out the door. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I tried to be positive about the whole thing. You could see, I mean, this wasn't a full, you know, I could see them. The lights were on everywhere. It was, so at the end, um, you know, there were a smattering of people here. And the, the guy who ran the thing came up to me and he just said, Liz, I've never seen so many people stay for the program. So what's going on, right? What's happening in that? What had I missed? And this is when I opened by saying, isn't it amazing when we bring things from one part of our life into another? Isn't that amazing? Like my understanding of being in that room with my uncle. But it also works in reverse. You bring ideas you have, you know, full house, stay there. That's the standard I'm going to measure myself by without any comprehension of what the standards are for that community. No, no understanding. And when and where and how do I come to understand how to change those things or how to change, not change those things, change my thinking, not theirs. This is a similar story, but with a different, a different kind of uh, take on it. 
I got to be a resident artist at our children's hospital in Washington, D.C. for five years. This was a remarkable thing. I went once a week with a piano player. We would go through the halls. We would stop in different rooms. And then we would generally work with the child life workers. And we would pull the, all the kids together. We would all be and often their families. And sometimes the nurses and people would stop by. And we would do these, these um, well, they were like classes, actually. I thought of them as like movement classes. And typically, you know, we'd do some warming up. And there'd be some improvisation and some storytelling. And some, we would usually make a dance. Um, uh, one day, there are two stories I want to tell here. Once, it was around Christmas time, and um, that's a very nice sound since we're talking about the children. <laughs> a little sound there. Um, one thing I like to remind people about, because it relates to what I said earlier about, about Cheyenne. At that time, I was very eagerly developing a postmodern dance company that operated with certain ideas about what was good and what was not good. And what was good at that time was, could you invent movement that no one had ever seen? Like, that was like the highest thing in the world. Well, turns out, guess what? The hospital is not interested in that. <laughs> they wanted me to see if I could keep the, uh, the kids moving for 30 minutes. Could I do something in such a way that the parents would see the child's body as healthy for just a second? Is it possible that the kids could actually feel excited about actually the body they were in? Could they get to know the other kids that had been down the hall? I mean, there was a fabulous set of commissions going on. They just weren't that same commission that I was having that I came in with. So we were doing this thing at Christmas where I had them, we had this very elaborate uh, thing about unwrapping packages that we did through movement, you know, stretching and all that stuff. And then each of them got to be the present they wished they could get. So somewhere between mime, charades, um, contemporary dance, interpretive dance, all kinds of stuff was happening in front of me. And this one kid totally stumped us. We could not figure out what he was doing. And finally, he told us that he was a suitcase. Because, of course, he wanted to go home. And there, you know, there again, I had this flash that it's not my job to figure out the meaning, always. It's not my job to do that. Part of my job was simply to make a space where, and you all know this, I know you know this, but it's still shocking when it, when it happened in front of me like that. And again, giving me language and images for how to communicate this. So five years at Children's Hospital, we never performed. The company never performed. I was busy trying to figure out how to articulate to the world the artist that I was being there. I know this is a question, right? Because we are measuring ourselves by our performance, something or other, and that's the highest mark of, a, of an artist. And I did have a company. I'm going to tell you in a minute how I came to frame how to hold all this. But at that time, I didn't have the frame. All I had was this experience. So we, fought, we decided to have a show. It was the last show. We came in. They brought every single people, everybody I'd gotten to know at the hospital for five years. Everybody came into the atrium, and we did a performance. And one of these performances was about bonsai trees. Uh, you know, the company was intergenerational at that time, ranging you know, from their 20s into their 80s and 90s. And I was very interested in bonsai trees because the old people just loved them because the trees were so much older than they were. And you were really excited to work on this. So, and this, this dance had, a, it was very, it's kind of lulling. It was about the, who took care of the trees. And a child that I'd seen earlier in the week, because I'd been at the hospital, fell asleep right in the front row. And I was really distressed. And then here I am again, measuring, measuring myself. The child had gone to sleep. As I was leaving, a nurse came running up to me, and she just said, um, I really want to thank you. We've been trying to put that child to sleep for three days. Thank you. This was really startling to me. Because I really thought my whole life was about waking people up. Was that not the message? And we had figured out how to put somebody to sleep. <laughs> I contend, and again, I'll show you a, the theoretical framework in a minute. I contend that if we, if we narrow our focus to the concert work only, that we lose the power of so much of what dance can do and does do. And that I myself was finding this amazing capacity to live the life of an artist by living in multiple, in these multiple worlds. And that my art form was 
startled constantly by what I was discovering. Now, in my case, I had, I had the place to go back into the art form. Well, it's all art. But into the notion that that little moment when I'm rehearsing with the company is the art, I had a place to kind of work all this out. And it, I have to tell you, it, it was an engine for me to have that space to go, that laboratory. It's just nice that I had these other laboratories too. My synagogue was one, the hospital one. Roosevelt Hotel for Senior Citizens was one. These are places where I was five, 10, 15, 20 years working this stuff out. And meanwhile, using the company as a source to kind of try to figure out how it all goes together. I have one more, one more story. Um, I just finished touring a work called Healing Wars in this piece, which was made initially in honor and in memory of the 150th anniversary of the American Civil War, which we just uh, had. I got very interested in uh, what happened to uh, medical people in that war and also what happened to the soldiers who came back from the war. We ended up making a piece in which the characters time traveled between uh, the war in Iraq and the Civil War. I got very involved with veterans communities during this project. So we were making a stage work that was going to tour both uh, uh, regional theaters and uh, dance venues. Uh, we had a vet in the piece, an amputee who'd come back, and we were doing a lot of, a lot of the research work was with veterans, and then when we performed and toured, we, we, we did a lot of work to reach into the veterans community. So just before it was gonna premiere, one of the veterans, somebody was working very closely with us, uh, whose brother had come home from Iraq, a triple amputee. Mike, Mike said to me, okay, it's getting close, I've got the tickets and everything, then he turned to me and he said, but Liz, uh, I have to ask you, does anybody get healed in this piece? Because if nobody gets healed, I'm not bringing the veterans. I said to him, I don't know. Give me 24 hours. I really had to think about it. I mean, the piece is called Healing Wars. The piece has got all kinds of issues around medicine and all that. But it was interesting what he asked me. And I'm, I'm just struck again in that moment by the engine I have as an artist, and I think I'm doing everything I'm supposed to, I'm doing the things I love to do. It's not hard for me to want to get in a story circle and hear things, and you know, for me to stay open to influence and let all that come in and affect me, I love all that. But here, maybe I hadn't done it enough. Like maybe I had missed the whole thing. And he, uh, you know, we were opening in a week. So I thought about it overnight, and then I came, I, the next day I called him up and I said, um, Mike, if you think that healing means that they get over it and that they're better and everything's going to be all right, then no, nobody's getting healed in this piece. If you think, as I do, I said, that healing is a verb, that um, you're marked, these people are, we're all marked, and then we spend our lives in relationship to that. If you think it's that, then yes, healing is happening right in front of you. I mean, it's happening in the moment. What that thinking started doing for me was thinking once more as if I hadn't been for 40 years, what is it that we're doing with our movement and our dancing and our life? What are we doing with this? And why is it so important? And then I said to him, you know, this is kind of like choreographic thinking, I'm telling you, to Mike. This is the way choreographers think, I said. And you know, the world needs this because everything is in motion. Everything is in motion. Your trauma is in motion. But so is, you know, the earth under us. So is it the way our buildings are falling down. So is it the way our politics are shifting. I mean, everything is in motion. I think our choreographic thinking is essential. I think it's essential. And we just have to keep thinking about how we talk about it, when we talk about it, why, who's listening, and in what form it takes. I'm gonna come back to that in a bit. <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> I wanna talk now a little bit about a frame for some of this. Many of you who know me or have read anything I've written already know what I'm gonna talk about, but I find that it continues to be a useful framework to bring to people and to reconsider even if you know what I'm about to do. But I'll start by saying that um, <clears throat> I 
think we'll do okay with the baby. Are people doing okay with the baby? And have you a, a set of agreements about the babies in our space? Yeah? Okay, great. All right. Thank you. And thank you for letting me check. <clears throat> um, I, get, I have to admit to being slightly distracted. You know, I'm hoping to be a grandmother, so I'm like, <laughs> maybe, I'll just, maybe I'll just do that. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I'm not going to go in the whole story, but I, you know, I began dancing with older people in 1975 which is the same year that uh, Robert Butler's book, Why Survive, was published. And I think I just started in on the very beginning of what was, kinda, was now the creative aging movement, but that's not what it was then. What it was then is my mother died. I was in my 20s. I had no idea what I was going to do. I was uh, a wreck and decided, like I did about the defense budget, to, you know, to make a dance about it. So I decided I needed some, excuse me, I keep saying old people, which I now am one. Um, but it's the language I used then, and I still haven't shifted to the terms, the other terms we use. But um, so forgive me if I offend anybody. But honestly, in, in the United States at that time, older people were entirely se uh, segregated. I mean, you just didn't even—I didn't know any, and I didn't know where they were. But I wanted some to be in this piece to welcome my mother to whatever had happened to her. And so I eventually found some at a place called the Roosevelt Hotel for Senior Citizens. This is a place that no longer exists. It's a condo now. But at the time, it was a home for 400 older people, also people who had mental conditions and things like that. And it was um, like middle, middle class, um, people who weren't in the worst homes um, but couldn't afford the really uh, fancy ones. And I went and convinced them to let me come in once a week and teach dance, and I would figure I would eventually find some people that would want to be in this piece. There's many, many, many stories I could tell about that, um, of my experience. What I will say these days is that I stayed 10 years there. It was highly transformational for me, for the people in the center, I think for the dance world on some level. And I know people want transform when people get transformed, you know, it feels like it's that fast. It's not. It's 10 years. It's three years. It's a lot of time. This is one of our problems with our funding sources now. It doesn't just happen. It takes a long time to work it out. I went. Lots of amazing things happened. I made this piece about my mother's death. They were fantastic in it. Um, I, thought th I thought it was all that we were done. They said, what's next? And what's next was... Well, my life was what's next, because it really changed everything for me. But what I want to get at now is the theoretical. So people started coming and looking at the class and saying, and then I would get this comment. <clears throat> OK, Liz, the dancing that your company is doing at the Kennedy Center and on tour and all that, that's up here. The work you're doing in the senior centers and the prisons and the schools, that's you know, down there. Or people did this said, by the way, that stuff you're doing, in, it's amazing what you're doing in communities. Why do you even still perform? It's old, it's white, it's European, it's like ridiculous, don't do it. Do you know this feeling? Okay. I, it's hard to explain how offended I was by that. And angry and put out, like couldn't people see this is like so impoverished. Why would I want to choose? So I did this, you know, which is really easy to do with my hands. <laughs> Done. But it proved to be the essential theory that I needed in order to sustain myself. It's not like the world did that. The world is here. We learn our behaviors here. But most of us are trying to live so many of us, that's why all of our young people are hybridizing themselves and living in multiple space. I mean, there's so many ways that the world has shifted here, but so many of our behaviors, you know, get taught here. Well, once I started doing that, and initially really it was in order to sustain a relationship between the work I was doing in communities and the work I was doing with my company. And in fact, we had two companies. We had the dancers of the third age, and we had this other company, this postmodern company, because even I couldn't see how, how wrong that was. I, I mean, I, it, took me, it took me a few years 
to sort out that we were being condescending and patronizing by having these two companies. We needed, it sort of broke my heart because we had to give up the name Dancers of the Third Age, which I just loved. But what I, what I started to notice was that there are all kinds of things that we place in this hierarchy. Uh, nurture and rigor. Uh, individual and collaborative. I also started to notice that we built them every single second. My company was performing in New York a bunch, and I finally realized I could choose a New York season or I could choose health insurance. <clears throat> I decided to take the health insurance for the company, and we stopped going to New York. And then once we stopped, I sort of started looking at the whole scene, and I realized, wow, there's a hierarchy in New York over, okay, um, did you get a review or not? If you got a review, which page of the paper was it on? Wait, was it on the top half or the bottom half? Wait, was there a picture with it? Wait, is the picture in color? Which newspaper? What venue? I mean, we do this to ourselves. Like, it's nonstop. And what's so frustrating about it is that when we do those hierarchies, there is a distinction between some of the venues in New York City. There is. There is a distinction between dance therapy and community-based dance. There is. In this world, if you want to make that distinction, you literally have to put something down. Literally, you have to put the other thing down. It's less than. But if you do this, you can make distinctions without rancor. Distinctions are highly creative, incredibly empowering, and by the way, sometimes life-threatening if you don't make those distinctions. But I don't want to make them for no reason at all. You can see that I'm building a case now for a way of having multiplicity in my life and maybe in other people's lives. This is singular. This is multiple. I'm in deep discussions with my rabbi about this because I've been asking him whether that single God isn't the whole problem, but we're, 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 in, we're, working, we're working on that. <laughs> it's, a, it's a really good discussion. Um, so I want to talk to you for a minute about two things in relationship to this horizontal that I feel so strongly. And again, we could spend the rest of the time talking about this, but... When, uh, what I will say, you know, um, what I wanted to be able to do is to say in these distinctions that we're making that the distinctions are built on permeable membranes so that things can slide between, not cement. You know, and you can see in our universities the struggle because they keep talking about silos and stuff like that. They're trying to break that down. That's an example of where if the stuff was more permeable and if we knew how to do this and if we put things on this, this way, it would just be a lot easier to do. Um, in this world, what's good and what's not good? This is good and this is not good. That's why it matters so much what's on top. That's why it matters. So how do we decide? How do we decide what's good? Because I like to say here, you know, <laughs> here you might say the cutting edge is only BAM's Next Wave Festival. Here, when we go like this, we can say the cutting edge is taking place in a hospital, in a school, and, and we know they are because we're there with them. We see it. We see the cutting edge art that's going on there. So I have a friend, Roberto Bedoya, who's just an amazing poet, and he runs one of our big arts councils at home. He talks about the sovereignty of context, the sovereignty of context. And so what we are talking about, when we flip this way and say what is excellent and what is good, then we are talking about, in part, the sovereignty of context. And it is thrilling to sort out what makes that good. That's what I was saying about the hospital, right? They had their own set of commissions and their own set of values, and it was my task, my task, to start to sort that out. <clears throat> so I have a friend and a colleague named Michael Rode. He's a theater artist doing this kind of work for many, many decades. He's, uh, he and I were both recruited at the same university, so we're spending time together now. He has a way of thinking about this that might be fruitful to you. He talks about studio practice, social practice, and civic practice. And each of those practices have values and ways of thinking and ways of working. And sometimes we get, we're either the wrong artist in the wrong situation, or we're trying to bring part of those practices into relationship that maybe aren't, don't work. So for example, studio practice would be like my dance about 
the defense budget. I mean, it's, I made it for myself. It's for me. I'm going to put it in theaters, well, and Kiwanis clubs. But basically, that, that, that's a practice. And, and I suppose I, I was in Leeds. We did a panel, and I heard again the term art for art's sake, which I actually don't really like. But uh, perhaps that's an assumption that's going on in here. I think you could ask yourself that question in other places. But OK, studio practice. Um, Social practice is actually probably where I'm most comfortable. I actually work on all three, but I think that's where I'm most comfortable. This is where an artist has an idea. I'm going to explore what happened to Civil War soldiers when they came home. I'm going to relate it to the war in Iraq. In order to do my work, I'm going to research in lots of communities. By the way, when I'm in that community, if I notice they need something, I'm going to make myself available to anything they want. I'm there, ready. I'm super curious about the role that art could play in relationship to them. I meet in that, in that world, I meet a lot of artists that are already working with veterans. They are totally amazing artists. It's, that's social practice. Michael thinks that civic practice is when an artist brings everything that they are to a place and actually it's all about the place. It is entirely about the needs of the community. It is all about what that institution needs and wants. That's a little bit like Children's Hospital was for me. I made myself completely available to whatever was going on. We did do that one performance, but as I told you, that was the, in the last day of the fifth year. I think it's interesting to think about that and to think about what that might mean to us as we formulate the work we're doing. Again, I'll just say I am happy to move along that spectrum. One more colleague I want to bring into our midst. <clears throat> Since I moved to the American Southwest a year ago, that's our desert. It's also the home of, it's the, the natural home to many of our native communities, although actually our indigenous people lived all over the country, but now that's where most of them are. It's also home to our so-called border with Mexico and um, uh, where a lot of our Latin, Latinx artists are working. So it's just an extraordinary, mix of cultures and cultural thinking. And one of the people I've gotten to connect to is an indigenous philosopher named Brian Brayboy. Brian says aesthetics is what a people think is good, beautiful, and true. Now, the good, beautiful, true part, we've heard that. The Greeks talked about that. But what Brian, by bringing to bear as an indigenous person what a people thinks, for me, that suddenly organizes all kinds of things around the issues we're having right now. Because let's think about it. In this world, who set the aesthetics? What people? And then what did we do about that? Did we all submit? In my case, submit to what the downtown, the downtown New York scene and its implications of what it thinks is good art? Because they, I mean, they are a people, and they think what they know is good, beautiful, and true, and it is for them. But if we do this, now which people and whose aesthetics and why, and how are we going to work that out? And that is a place that I am incredibly interested in right now. And what way do I have to change my shape? to be able to see the things that are happening around me. So I'm going to pause for a minute, because I want to get into a whole other area about that, leave that little dangler there, and see if, for example, I was going to offer maybe a chance for you, if you guys want to maybe take a moment, talk to someone near you about what I've been talking about so far, or something else if, if you need to. But bring, maybe, maybe you want to think about the horizontal and its implication for you or the civic, social, whatever. But just talk among yourselves for a few minutes. Don't leave anybody alone. You know, if you go that way and you go that way, you may have to, you know. But just give yourselves a chance to reflect with somebody. And then maybe we can hear from people and get some questions and see. And then I'll jump into the other part, okay? So take a second, see how this, yeah. Okay, let's maybe finishing up whatever's driving you. <clears throat> Great. So I can't see all the way up there, but um, I mean, I see that you're up there, but I would love it if people have thoughts, responses, things they need to say, questions, you know, whatever. It would be nice to have, uh, it's a little, I wish we were in a circle, but, you know, architecture does not support us yet that way. So um, uh, 
yeah, thoughts, and I'll try to, I think people have microphones so they can run and find you, but you will have to raise your hand. Wait, watch this. <laughs> okay, my name is Sarah Houston, and um, I, I was really interested in the phrase sovereignty of context, and I'm a researcher, and I really believe that I have to know and understand the context in which the dance takes place in order to go forward with um, my thinking. Um, but then I was thinking about this word sovereignty. And it's a word which uh, in the UK at the moment uh, is, is a particularly uh, volatile word. Um, and, and it also um, sig signifies um, a platform or, or boundaries, a separation. And I was thinking, actually, our contexts, although they are very specific, actually they blend, they bleed, and not one context will actually um, be the sum of what is there. Um, so that was my little thought on sovereignty of context. That's just uh, really fantastic and a perfect example of how, you know, uh, you can't just jump into another community and think that the language works. Um, so uh, I have, um, it's a principle of mine that when I teach and I work with people I often think about, which is multiple words for the same idea so that we don't get hung up at least so that we can't communicate with each other over the, well, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give up the word, you know, like that. That we understand that and also begin to explore what the nuances and differences are. To me, it's one of our great, great tools. However, now that I have become very adept at multiple words for the same thing, I wonder how I'm contributing to fake news in my country. <clears throat> because in some ways, Political spin is also multiple ways to say the same thing. So it raises up the possibility that our creativity and our tools, which are so spectacular, actually need values, I don't know, multiple words here, values, ethics, um, systems to help us, ritual, help us do mm, what we might think is good, beautiful, and true. I'm working with a very interesting uh, person at home, uh, Mark Bamudi. He's a, he's a, a Haitian-American, beautiful choreographer, slam poet, and uh, also a curator at one of our big centers. And he and I are working together on an idea about what we're calling a values chain, which we borrowed from some rural poverty work that I know about. And, and a value, um, the values chain works in relationship to poverty because it talks about multiple forms of wealth and then it says you can't raise the wealth in one area at the expense of another. So if you form a values chain, for example, you, gentrification, gentrification is an example where you are building the values and built wealth at the expense of the social network in that community. So you, if you had a values chain, you wouldn't be able to build the buildings without sustaining the social network. That's what, uh, that's what it, so he and I are working on this in relationship to this very thing, except it's not as complicated. It's aesthetics, uh, social values, personal, um, our personal sense of responsibility, and then the institutions we work for. And the idea that we could build some kind of uh, way to think about those things so that I don't forward my, say, my art so much at the expense of, well, my, the values of my community or something like that. It's just a thought that we're working on now, but what you raise. The other thing, I, this is another story. I, uh, I was in Baltimore for five years before I moved to the Southwest. And we have a huge, huge, very well-renowned hospital and school called Johns Hopkins. And Johns Hopkins uh, considers itself an anchor institution, which is a term that gets used. And I hate that term. I lived in that community, and they were an anchor. It was like, you know, it was like that. You know, you couldn't get, you know, the anchors were everywhere. And I went to visit them, and I said, why don't you call yourself a citizen institution? It'll go much better. So I blithely thought that was a great idea. And then I moved to the Southwest, and I brought this up at a meeting. I said, let's have citizen institutions. And they did exactly what you just did. They said, the word citizen in the Southwest is problematic because we have so many undocumented people. It's not necessarily a good word. 
So anyway, all to which is to say, this is amazing. And why I want to be in an environment where these kinds of differences can emerge and be discussed and talked about. And believe me, a horizontal helps a whole lot more than this. Again, we're back to multiplicity, but now I've posed the additional ethical issues around multiplicity and what are we going to do about those. Somebody else? Is it working now? Hello. Okay. Oh, it's, it's working. Um, Simon Sharkey, uh, National Theatre of Scotland. Um, again, I'm very interested in the sovereignty of context and, and, and how that permeability uh, works. And the thing that, uh, there are so many thoughts, but I'll, I'll stick to one. One is about the, the evolution of the art in, in a horizontal frame. Because we, by instinct and, uh, and, and need, we, we want to see the art evolve. And to do that, we're automatically looking at some sort of hierarchy. How do, how do you yeah. square that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> one way I square it <laughs> is, is to say, okay, at this end is BAM, and at this end is my backyard, and I'm going to move along the spectrum. And I can still hold BAM in my sights if Brooklyn Academy of Music, you know, next wave, you know, mo you know, I can hold it there, but I don't let it empower everything I'm going to be. So, but it's not just, it's not just BAM that I'm speaking to, because what I realized is if I lived in this world, I would accept the standards of that world, and that would, I would not be standing here in front of you if that's what I had done. I would have been a mediocre postmodern choreographer. Yeah. But no, seriously, because I don't know how to do the stuff that that world loves. It doesn't interest me. I mean, parts of it do. That's the thing. Parts of it do. Yes, please, we'll go into it. Parts of it do. Like, I, I, let me just say this. I love being in the theater, and I love being challenged, and you know, I, can't, I, I, I want the best possible people around me. I, I would hate it if I didn't have that opportunity. But it's not the only thing that feeds my sense of who I am and what good art is. It's a part of the picture. I guess I would say that. One of the other things that tests me with that, because I totally agree with that, is how do we resist then the, it's, it's not just the temptation, but the, the, the drive to use this approach into what people perceive to be an evolution of the art for um, other other purposes or or or, or changes. Yeah. Um, a, a, a thing that's bubbling up for me is is leadership in this way of of working being borrowed um, to to do other stuff um, and that, and to support the hierarchy. Yeah. So I'm going to get into the because that's partly what I've been thinking a lot about. I'm going to hold it till we hear more, but I will come back to it in something and and try to address that. Um, because, and this is where I'm being fed so much by the artists of the indigenous communities and the Latinx communities and the African-American communities, because as that work gets built, it does come from a different aesthetic, and it's forcing a combination of changes that will also, I think, help move the field in a way. But we'll, we'll, we'll look at that a little bit more in a minute. I, I love the questions, though. And, and uh, I will also add that I feel at home there are an enormous number of young people who feel that the gate, wait, they're willing to stand at the gate and get in, but not for too long. And if they can't get in, they'll just go another route. And they're making all kinds of amazing things. Many of them, as I say, hybridizing, changing the way an artist looks. They have no problem being a fashion designer and this and that and, you know, just none. So it's, it's interesting, but we'll come back. Yeah. Hi, Liz. Um, it's fascinating to hear the word multiplicity and this, um, this idea that um, now somehow we're... Um, again, I... I um, it's very Eurocentric still mm -hmm. because as a South Asian artist, um, the word... Um, I wouldn't call myself as a dancer. Um, I'm a maker of work, of performance, dance, theater, music, all uh, is uh, together. Um, and the weight I might give to whatever that ingredient, including multiplicity, you know, the, the idea that you would only become 
a particular, be, you know, what you were saying, this young person uh, would now have no problem. I think it's also about different cultures, um, how multiplicity is seen in different cultures is also very different. It's really important. And again, I just say, and I, this is merely a framework, uh, the, uh, the speed with which we feel it can't, um, it's hard to hold, because I would say, make a thing like this, and here's a form of multiplicity over here as envisioned by one culture, and here's a form of multiplicity over here as envisioned by another. And actually, the possibility that the multiplicity is, this is what my rabbi says to me, to be honest, it's he talks about it's not one god it's oneness the oneness the wholeness of that so that becomes a form of multiplicity i would just put it over here my goal is simply is is to try to build a world in which belonging is so much easier and that we won't waste so much time feeling like we don't belong and we can jump in and belong and get going because we have so much work to do um that's part of it and to and to sort of not do more harm by the mechanisms that we continue to set up. However, <coughs> I'm sure all my thinking is biased. I mean, I was born in the middle of the last century, middle, you know, middle of America, Jewish girl. Undoubtedly, it's biased in a certain kind of way. And I'm, I'm, I will say I'm working very hard to see even the critical response process, which we did earlier today, submitting it to a lot of people and asking them in what way is it biased, what could we do, how does it need to change so that it can work in your communities. And that's part of what I'm interested in is changing the shape of it all. This may not hold. It may be that this is actually going to have to go away. There's some other thing that's going to be better than that. But um, I hear you in relationship to the way your culture has built multiplicity into the thing itself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm so enjoying being with you. Um, uh, I, in the past, I had the image of a pyramid, and the hierarchy was that you wanted to get to the top of the pyramid, and the community was all along that bottom. And I think um, I used the image of palaces and housing estates, and I wanted to work more in housing estates than I did in palaces. But, and then if you turned it over, it wasn't very stable, because turning a pyramid over is, is wobbly. And I do work with imagery, so words confuse me. Imagery, as a dancer, stays with me. So I'm really enjoying now looking at your line and turning it over, and that one, and I'm enjoying the line. But I am seeing, oh my gosh, is there a beginning of the line and the end of the line? And should I go one way, should I go the other? And then I thought, maybe rainbow, because a rainbow, you can slip up and down it and whatever. But it still could become hierarchical. And then I'm just thinking now, where I'm thinking now is perhaps I'm only thinking 2D. But that line can spread in any forward back. So it's not just a linear. It, it, it's, so that's that's true. And actually, if you make it a circle which you can then, because very often the far ends are really next door neighbors. We know that, and it just pull it together um, for sure. And, I, you know, just to make it just a little more complicated, because it's just, you know, it's really just a, a, a little schematic in a way. Uh, you know, if, um, if, you, if you're here and you feel the world changing like that, you're going to be terrified. Because, again, we, most of us learn so many of our behaviors here that we know what it means to be on the bottom, and we don't like it. And so you don't know it can stop here unless you've practiced that. You just don't know. Meanwhile, if you've been at the bottom for several hundred or thousand years and you start feeling this, why wouldn't you come up here? It's your turn. So it's really much more like this. It's way unstable. And, uh, and it requires, uh, you know, uh, I, what I do find that I'm pretty, I've done, I've worked so hard at it for so long, I do find that you can kind of behave as if you're in the horizontal, even at a university, um, like I'm at right now. It's funny, it's sort of funny to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, is there another, there was a hand here, yeah. We, we have time for a couple more, yeah, we do. And then we'll move back into listening mode, if you don't mind. <clears throat> Hello. Um, 
was really interested in you talking about working in specific um, communities and cutting-edge art happening in those groups. Um, my work is really rooted in the geographical area where I live, in Stoke-on-Trent. And um, a lot of people talk to us about, well, you need to go and make performance somewhere else, or it needs to go on tour, or it needs to go out. And we're not really interested in that no. because we're so interested in the place. And so I just wondered if you had any advice or thoughts on how we encourage people to place value on that work that is cutting edge and is happening in a specific place or community. Yeah, and I mean, it's fantastic. And actually, you know, for, for someone like me who's been a, mostly a touring artist and a wanderer, uh, there's a part of me that just yearns for the world you're creating. Um, yeah. There, yeah. But what will help is this framework. It's like, just, it's like you just have to, it's like, first you have to believe it yourself, that it's true, and then how you want to build the support around it so other people start believing that it's true too. And this is, gets back a little bit to our dilemma about um, uh, who are the champions, and do we have to get champions that are from the top to help tip the thing? Um, you know, what's the strategy? Do you want to actually live in that world for a little while? Because you kind of have to. Yeah, so um, there's an enormous interest at home in um, art in very particular communities and art in rural communities. There's a huge interest, and I think especially after the last election. So um, there may be colleagues from other parts of the world, actually, that are doing the exact same thing. No. Similar, similar to you, and and some connection there may help your own community. You know, it's funny we did we spent two years in a in a shipyard, Portsmouth Naval Shipyard, back, back and forth. We didn't live there, but we went back and forth. And one of my favorite sessions was um, uh, a session with um, the officers' wives. You know, <laughs> they send these people every two years. They break them up and send them somewhere else. So the way in which they form their relationships. Anyway. Uh, I walked in, and the first thing they said, we did a little circle. We were going to make some movement as part of the whole dance we were building for the whole community. And the first thing they said to us is, we're the most liberated women in America. And, I, you know, I just, I really like it when people say things that are totally blow my assumptions. It's just like nothing I thought. I asked them to say more about it. And they said, oh, well, we birthed the babies. We changed the tires. And it's because the guys are gone. They're out on those boats, on the submarines. <clears throat> And I said, that is so beautiful. And of course, she said back, oh, I never heard, you know, I didn't know that was beautiful. Like, absolutely no notion that her life was, there was something in the way she reflected. And, so, and I, again, I know you guys all know this, but our capacity to listen and say back to a community, you are beautiful, you are amazing, this is incredible, takes a while. They, you know, people just don't, they just don't believe that. So... Yeah, I'll, th I'll tell you actually one more story from that and then, and then I'll move on. The, the thing at the shipyard that I just loved is that we ended up, um, we collected all these stories and we made a gesture for every story. And then everywhere we went, we taught everybody the dance and told the story behind it. So by the time, um, was there one more question there? Yeah, no, good, okay. By the time uh, we got to the end, we had this whole dance of gestures. And um, one of the gestures, well, that night with the officers' wives, the gesture we took was this. Because what she did, they all did, is they, when they were pregnant, they would measure their bellies with string. And then the government sends the, the, the string somehow in the mail over to the guys. And one of the guys had, um, he would, had his locker open and there would be you know, all the string hanging. And one day, one of the guy, other guys on the submarine went by and said, hey, what's all that? And he said, oh, that's my baby. So we, we told that story, and we, this was the, like the fourth movement, and everybody, you know. So the last day of the thing, we did a big event in the park. We had, you know, maybe 1,500 people in the park. We faced the shipyard. We did a whole bunch of stuff. <laughs> There's dancing all over the park by all kinds of people in the shipyard I mean, who worked there. And then we did this thing one more time, and we did all that. This guy comes up to me afterwards. He's a welder. And... I just loved his opening line. He said, you know, I want you to know I didn't come to anything you did for the two years. <laughs> just love that. It's like, yeah, okay. It's like, all right. And, and, then, um, and then he said, but would you like to know my favorite movement? And I said, well, sure. So, he, you know, the welder, he goes like that. And 
I said, well, why? And he said, well, I've been working at the yard for 20 years. I have never been able to imagine for a second what life is like on the submarines. And now I have an image. So back again to the very thing I started with at the beginning, these incredible things that happened to us, these things you don't even know you're doing. What are you activating? And now that I know that, I can actually say to people, I don't know, to funders or people, oh, look, we activate imagination. Now I can tell that story. Or I know to work on it harder and make sure that that's actually happening for people because it's so powerful. So um, I'm going to move into this thing, this area I'm thinking about right now. And just checking my time. Okay, I'll do a shorter version of it. Uh, <clears throat> We, we did a piece about genetics, uh, and I got to work with scientists for, and that piece toured for quite a while. It was all, all about, you know, what's happening in genetic engineering and all that. And we, we performed it at one of our universities, and I was met afterwards by the head of the physics department, and he said to me, well, you know, we'd like one, uh, meaning a piece about physics. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not in the least bit interested. He said, well, come to our faculty meeting tomorrow. So I did. I went. And what I loved is they told me the time. They were all on time. And I like it when people are on time. And I thought, maybe there's a relationship between dancers and physicists. They are on time. So I said, OK. But what they talked about was that they were all going to CERN. That's the place you know, where they smash the particles. They were all working there. And they, they wanted me to know that they were going to figure out the beginning of the universe in the next couple of years. And wouldn't I like to be a part of that? <laughs> And you know, I just said to them, well, what about all the other origin stories? Well, what are we going to do? Right. I mean, really, I'm happy for the physicists and the scientists, but what about all those other belief systems? So although I, I did get interested, and I did go to CERN, and I did spend a lot, and we did make a piece, and it's an interesting piece. Uh, but when you, when you get into physics, I mean, any artist who gets into physics, you eventually get into the Heisenberg uncertainty pr principle. And I'm sorry if there are any physicists in the room here, because I'm going to do damage to the principle. But, um, you know, they, they really don't like it when artists find it, because, you know, they don't think it's metaphor. But we all get all excited about it. But my understanding of Heisenberg uncertainty principle is if you measure the shape of something, you cannot get its velocity. And if you measure the velocity, you cannot see its shape. So they have measurement problems too, incidentally. Not just, not just us. They do too. I'll say it again. You measure the shape, you find the shape, you see the shape, you won't be able to get what else is happening and how it's moving. And if you go for this, the velocity, you won't find it. Sometimes they say the point or sometimes they say the spot. But I like to think about shape. So I, I got really interested in this. First, I started thinking about dance and how many dancers are either shape dancers or momentum dancers. It's interesting to think about that. And could we actually, as a company, we began to work to see if we could figure out how, how, how to bridge that. But more, I started thinking about, um, <clears throat> about institutions, including the way we think about things as a kind of a myth, the institutions. And how long do we hold on to our shape once we find the shape of the thing, how long do we hold on to it? And then what momentum are we missing because of that? So if you think about the urgent times we're in, but we're in these shapes, what happens? Or in my institution, which is known as the most innovative school in the country, it's all momentum. There's no shape to the innovation. You, you, I mean, it's just crazy there. You, can't, you just can't see anything. And you need the shape. So I, went, I was started thinking about way, way back to when I started dancing with older people. And you know, in some circles, I'm credited with um, beginning older people dancing. This is foolhardy. I mean, older people have been dancing for thousands and thousands of years. I mean, it's just that we forgot for a little while in one part of the world with a certain kind of dance in a certain kind of way. But I did connect some dots. I, you know, I connected my own personal tragedy. I connected what I was seeing with these gorgeous old bodies. I connected how bereft I felt about a lot of the dance I was seeing. So I connected some dots. And pretty soon, a shape started to emerge. Other people started connecting dots. You started to see a thing starts to emerge. So then I started wondering, well, what's the relationship between the dots, the momentum, the stuff that's out there, and the shapes we form? And is it possible for us to change our shape? How do we do that? Well, the dance exchange did a lot. 
we changed our shape when we dropped dancers of the third age. We had a beautiful shape. It was phenomenal. But it was not true to the momentum of its times. And we had to take it apart. Now, we didn't lose the older people dancing. We didn't lose that. We kept that. But we put it in a different shape. It's really hard for institutions to change their shape. But it's really exciting when it happens because you get to drop back into the essence, into the, into the essentials, and figure out what matters now. And then shape now for, it, for whatever that is. And that is, you guys, that is choreographic thinking. Tell me that isn't choreographic thinking. That is what we do all of the time, all the time, figuring out what that is, just even for a split second and losing it. So I was having this discussion, we were having a discussion, and I'm in the School of Film, Dance, and Theater at this uh, university, and we've got to do some shape, shape shifting, we've got to do some changing, and I was advocating for the fact that they're going to have to lose some of their programs because they just, they're not working, they're old, they have to be. And this woman stood up and she gave a passionate plea for, yes, but we're going to save the fundamentals. And I said, well... I'm not sure the fundamentals aren't the problem that got us here, but, but maybe, maybe we can save some of them. And then I, I gave her this example. I said, okay, so I was raised, um, and it'll be interesting to hear how you hear this as a, as a classical Indian dancer. It'll be good to, to see how this works. But I was raised first in classicism. And I was told as a classical dancer that I could do any movement if I studied classicism. Do you remember that idea? Well, it's not true. I can't, there are half the world's dances I can't do because I'm trained first in classical ballet. You know, I'm all up here, and they're all down here. I mean, I can. I can, but I have to move my molecules in order to do it. Um, I, I, you know, so to me, that's like a fundamental thing that we could rethink. It's not that, that classic, classism has to go away or ballet has to go away. It's not saying that. It's saying, but are we in the shape? And this is, I guess, where I'm trying to get at with some of the stuff that you are. What are the shapes that we need to be in to support the kinds of things that we're thinking about, including whose aesthetic is it? So uh, I was interested even in reading the, 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 the thing that happened yesterday about creativity and keeping creativity central. I don't know whose shape of creativity we're talking about when we say it has to stay central. There are... Uh, that was a perfect sound for the fact that creativity lives in so many shapes. So when we say we have to sustain creativity, like what? Like, like the kind I've been advocating? I mean, I love the way I think about individualism, and I, I love all that. But it lives on a spectrum along with many others. And my shape is, it will someday have to change. It's going to have to to be into that momentum. And I am finding that this idea of thinking about shape and momentum is a, is a worthy way to consider not just our institutions. OK, now back to the individual artists in the room and what I was saying about our knowledge right from the very beginning. In what shape do I put my knowledge so that people can understand it? It's even the question in the community that you posed a few minutes ago. What shape do we have to be in so people can see it? And I'm not sure putting in a shape, and we keep saying, see, this is art, see, this is art, see, this is art. I don't know. That's one way. But there may be whole other ways that we can shape ourselves and still call it whatever we want to call it, multiple words, and see what happens. And for me, that, that is a kind of an exciting idea in a way to sort of. And I know that for people who, for example, are working as in hospitals and in healing settings, and you're being asked to take a certain shape in order to be received there. I understand that. And I guess I say, what's the knowledge in there? What are you learning by changing your shape? What's happening in there? And don't despair. Because there is information about creativity there. And by the way, you, maybe the other parts of your life you know, live somewhere else. So um, I'm going to, um, what do I have? Oh, good. I'd like to just tell you one more story about Healing Wars, and, um, and then we'll, we'll end the conference. And by the way, if we chat for a little bit afterwards, I am very curious if this shape and momentum means anything to you, because it's brand new. It's just I'm sort of on the edges of trying to understand it, and I really love having an eye. It's like a work in progress event. I'm really happy to have a chance to try it out, so thank you. Um, when we, when we started making Healing Wars, as I said, we got involved with a lot of veteran circles. And 
um, well, it's a good example, actually, shape. It's like, it wasn't like they were, this thing was gonna turn into the piece. It was more like uh, ways, well, maybe it was a way to contextualize. We heard amazing stories. And uh, I began to wonder, what were these men missing? Mostly men, although there were men too. What were they missing when they came home? And I decided that um, they were missing the risk that they experienced when they were soldiers. You know, it's really interesting. You know, they, they're risking even when they're playing cards. I mean, they have a sense of risk all the time. I also uh, began to hear in their stories that um, they missed purpose. They came back and like, I mean, really, we just throw them into nothing. And, uh, and, and their um, capacity to find purpose, having had so much, and then losing it, just like that. And then the third thing is, I really thought that they missed love. You know, they never sign up because of uh, America's foreign policy. They, they re-sign up because they love the people that they're with. And it's that very particular kind of love. Um, it's, it's amazing. You can feel it, the way they look at each other, the way they... And I, I started thinking, you know, they're kind of addicted to that. And they don't have it. And then I started thinking, well, you know, I'm addicted to those things. I'm addicted to risk. I'm addicted to purpose. And I'm addicted to love, and that's one reason, what, we throw ourselves into the next project. I mean, we just do it again, right? Or the next possibility, the next thing we, and you know, there's a, a lot of work happening with veterans in relationship to the arts, and this is why I think why. It's not the same risk, and it's not even the same purpose. It is, I do think it's the same love, actually, but these are powerful things that we get to have. And you know, most most of our most of our communities, they have parts of that, but that, that that's it's it's such a powerful thing. So if our capacity to bring shape to any of that in a way that people can participate with us, I think is a great thing. So I'll leave you with that: risk, purpose, and love. And we'll close down the conference. And thank you all. And thanks to this amazing group of people. Thank you.